Okay, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And over the past couple of weeks, what we've been doing is uh, we've been looking at uh, looking at King David before he's king. We're looking at him from uh, his, how was it that I worded it? From his, I'm drawing a blank now. Not awful. Okay, from his exile to his exaltation. There you go, that's what, how I worded it. From his exile to his exaltation. And uh, so... Kind of that time frame, that uh, that part of David's life began whenever he realized that Saul was not going to give up on pursuing after him and persecuting him, and so it started a ten-year period where he was on the run from Saul. And uh, anyway, during that ten-year period, he dwelt in caves and in wilderness, and uh, even in the land of the Philistines for a good while. And throughout that time, he consistently uh, waited on God. He waited for God to bring things about, to bring about the things that God had promised him. And there was times that he doubted, times that he feared, uh, times that he made mistakes. Uh, we find that he is called uh, a man after God's own heart, but he is also a man after Adam's flesh. And so those two things are at war in his life all the way through. And that's one of the reasons why I like David so well, is that he is he is relatable. He is an excellent picture of what we face as Christians, what we face as believers. And we can see that he messes up, he makes mistakes. Some of them are very serious mistakes, but yet God still loves him. He still uh, works in spite of that. Sometimes David's facing the consequences of his decisions, but yet God does not cast him aside. God does not... Say, well, fine, then I'm done with you. Go somewhere else. I'm going to find someone else, right? Yeah. He continues working in David's life. And so anyway, in this time that we've seen so far from his exile to his exaltation, um, he was uh, out in the wilderness, and all of the, uh, all of the outcasts came his way. All of those who were uh, indebted, those who were... Uh, discourage those who, whatever reason it was, all the outcasts were resorting to David. And throughout his time of shepherding them, the influence that he had on them turned them from being a, a ragtag bunch of misfits into being his mightiest men. And so out of those 600 men that were with him in the wilderness that started out by just being the, uh, the outcasts, they were the ones that were his poor group. They were the ones that were his mighty men that you read about the uh, the great big list of all the men that did big feats and all these things that came from that group of men, and I believe the reason why they were able to do that was because of the the leadership David had in their lives, the principles that he instilled in them, them watching him as he's running from King Saul, and the way that he behaves himself wisely, the way that he uh, is constantly living a really a consistent life and a life of integrity, a life of character. And that has an effect on the men that follow him, and they are loyal with him all the way to their very lives. And so anyway, he starts uh, with these with these men. He's molding them and shaping them. More, than, more or less, he doesn't realize it at the time, but that's the effect he's having on them because of 
who he is. And so as he is in the wilderness, there are really four different events, too good and too bad, I guess, in David's life that we've studied over the past couple of weeks. And the two good ones was he had two opportunities to kill Saul and he didn't do it. He had the opportunity in the cave and he had the opportunity where uh, Saul was sleeping out in the field with his army, with his soldiers, and he had his spear and his water jug, his canteen or whatever there. And in both those times, everyone said, David, here's your chance, kill him. And David uh, looked at the opportunity that was before him and he filtered it through godly principles and he said, yes, I have an opportunity, but I'm going to use it wisely. And he doesn't kill Saul, and instead he uses the opportunity to prove to Saul and everyone around him that he was a man of integrity, that he wasn't seeking to kill Saul, and that he was also a man of faith that he wasn't going to take into his own hands uh, to fulfill what God had promised him. And that's a, a great lesson to us because a lot of times uh, we want to try to make things work ourselves. We're going through and we're trying to figure out, okay, how can I make these things line up? Mm-hmm. And David, instead of saying, okay, God said I'm going to be king, become king, here's my chance. Mm-hmm. He said, if God's going to make me king, he's going to have to make me king. Right. And he says, I'll not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so he, he showed great restraint and he showed great character there and he would not allow his men to do the job either. Uh, it would have been easy for him to say, okay, well, I'm not going to do it, but I can't control what everybody else does. You know, just kind of walk away separately. Yeah. Wouldn't we be tempted to do that if we were David? Oh, sure. Even if we were trying to act with integrity, it's like, well, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed, but no one says that Joab can't. <laughs> yeah. We're going to learn today that Joab would be just the type to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, you have those two that were very good shining moments for him. And I said that there was four. There's actually more than four. But there were two times that he went to the Philistines and ended up having to uh, use deceit and treachery to try to save his own neck because he, he quit trusting God in keeping him safe in Israel. And he says, well, I'm going to go and hide amongst the enemies. I'm going to go in and fit amongst the Philistines so that I don't have to worry about Saul anymore. And with that, it, it was not one of his best times. Uh, the one time he had to pretend to be insane to get away. And then the other time he had to pretend like he was fighting against his own people and causing his own people to hate him for the king of the Philistines to think, okay, well, he's on our side. So they, he did that. He also uh, almost killed Nabal and all of his family. And Abigail interceded and gave him great uh, counsel, and God avenged, and David got a wife. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of his first wives. And so he had all these things, and uh, the the thought that I brought out over and over is that David behaved himself wisely. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be a, a thought always in the back of our minds mm-hmm. as Christians of whether we're behaving ourselves wisely. Mm-hmm. Our actions and our attitudes have a huge effect mm-hmm for our testimony and on the people that's around us. And not only that, but just the way that people respond to us, the way that people view us, their willingness to listen to us uh, is going to be based on how we behave ourselves, if we behave ourselves wisely. And uh, it's just a good principle to go by. And so that's what David did. He behaved himself wisely. And through this, God was able to bless him. 
God was able to bring about his will in David's life. And after all this time, uh, we're getting to the place now where David is right about 30 years old. He has spent half of his life, because he would have been anointed sometime probably in his mid-teens, he spent half of his life knowing that God promised him a throne, mm -hmm. and he's still not there. Right. Could you imagine going on you know, 15 years and not feeling like you're any closer to it? And so what we ended last week was Saul was dead on the battlefield. Uh, he had consulted the witch of Endor and all of that. He had uh, completely turned away from God and he turned to devils, basically. Whenever we reject God, we'll embrace the flesh and Satan. And that's what Saul did. And he took his armor bearer, he took his sons, he took Jonathan with him. And while Israel was fighting with the Philistines, David and his men were fighting against the Amalekites. Uh, trying to get back their stuff that had been stolen away. And it was then that uh, they were fighting in two different places. Saul uh, was defeated and defeated soundly, and David won a great victory. Mm -hmm. And it was going on at the same exact time. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, kind of typified, if you will, uh, David and Saul's lives. Uh, Saul had rejected God, rejected the things of God, been rejected by God, and he was failing and going down in flames, if you will. And David was going from strength to strength. He was going from victory to victory. And so God was blessing him. And so Saul's dead on the battlefield. And today we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And this is David hearing about Saul's death. Okay. And if you put yourself in David's position here, David's not the one that killed him. Right. The enemies killed him, right? right? And if you had been David running from Saul while he's been persecuting you, trying to kill you for going on 15 years now, and you heard the news that Saul was dead, how would you respond? Okay. Be a party, wouldn't it? Yeah, you would be excited. <laughs> there would be a, a few different thoughts that would come in. It would be a bittersweet moment because he also hears that Jonathan, his best friend, died. Right. But... I think our first reaction, if we were in that place, would be finally he got what was coming to him, right? With Saul, not Jonathan. That Saul got what was coming to him. Second thing would probably come to our mind as, okay, God's finally going to make me king. This is it. Saul's out of the way. I wouldn't raise my hand against God's anointed, but he's gone now. The Philistines did. And so now is my chance. Now is my time to shine, right? Mm -hmm. And this would have been his thought that would have come through, I'm, I'm sure, being human. But this is the way that he behaves himself, because he behaves himself wisely. And so in chapter 1, I'm not going to read the chapter because I want to read in chapter 2, I believe. But in chapter number 1, uh, there is a man that comes and meets David, and, say, and he's bringing the news. The Philistines came against Israel, and Saul was wounded. And the man says, Saul was wounded, and he asked me, to finish him off so that the Philistines didn't abuse him, didn't torture him. And so I could tell that he wasn't going to live any longer, uh, that he couldn't survive this. So I had uh, mercy on him. I showed pity on him, and I finished him off. That was the, the way that the guy presented it to David. And rather than David responding like he thought that he would, because this man knew that Saul had been after David for all these years, and that Saul had made himself an enemy to David, even though David never considered him an enemy. This man said, surely he's going to reward me for this. And he brings the crown. He brings all of these things. 
to David and says, look at what I have done. I have delivered you. Well, he, he, he tries to make it sound a little more spiritual and says, God has delivered your enemy, delivered you from your enemy. And brings him the crown and says, Saul is dead. Here's his crown. And in a way, it's saying here, it's your turn to become king. Now, this man's not an Israelite. He's an Amalekite. Right. Okay? But he's saying, here's your chance to become king, and I'm ready for my reward now. That's his attitude. That's his posture that he takes. But he is misunderstanding David's character because he takes no delight in Saul's death. Even the Bible tells us that, uh, well, you remember that David's a man after God's own heart. And the Bible tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right. And David has no pleasure in the death of Saul. Right. And so whenever this man says, I killed Saul, David said, you have spoken, you basically confessed your own crime here. And he kills the man. He says, you've raised your hand against the Lord's anointed. You have taken upon yourself the position that should have only been God's. And so you've signed your own death warrant. And they killed the guy. And that was a testimony to all of the men that followed David. These 600 men that are with David are watching him take care of this. Okay? And these 600 men are expecting the same thing that the Malachite is. They're hearing, then they're hearing for the first time, Saul is dead. And they have ran away from Saul, and they've been on the run from Saul. They've been defending David from Saul. And their first response probably would have been, woohoo! And then they hear David say, that was not your place to kill Saul. What you have done is wrong, and now I'm going to punish you for this. And they're sitting back saying, how does this man's brain work? What is it about, why is David doing this? But they've walked with him long enough. They're starting to realize that David is trusting in God, that David is allowing God to work these things out, and that every time that man is doing things for their own for their own purposes, trying to work out things their own way, rather than allow God to do things, that David's not for that. Right? And so they've seen David pass up the opportunities to kill Saul. And so even now, whenever Saul is dead, David's not glorying in it. He says, this isn't the way that it's supposed to go. Okay? And so they see this. They, they mourn for Saul. They bury Saul. There's bury, they don't bury him. The men of Jabesh Gilead do. But anyway, they mourn for Saul, mourn for Jonathan. And starting in chapter 1, verse number 17, David... Um, basically gives a eulogy, okay? You know how everybody always speaks well of someone at their funeral? Yeah. It doesn't matter how big of a scoundrel they were in their life. That mm. Everybody ha everybody says nice things at their funeral. Yeah. Well, David's extra nice to him, considering all that we learned about him. But anyway, that's actually verse number 19. I'll read a little bit of this. It says, The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there is or excuse me, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the Sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. 
That's the part that really stuck out to me in this. Um, Saul was not lovely and pleasant to David, was he? But David has respect unto Saul, has respect unto the position that he held, the fact that he was anointed, and he's not going through bad-mouthing him, telling about how horrible of a wretched scoundrel he was, and I'm glad he's dead. And it's a great lesson to us in how we treat others, especially those who mistreat us, those that we don't like, rather than seeking out revenge, rather than saying, hey, they got what was coming to them and taking glory in it. We could take it more like David did. And that's difficult for us. I believe that takes the Holy Spirit of God. That takes walking with Him uh, very closely before we can ever achieve anything close to what David is doing here. Because honestly, as we're reading over this, we're like, it's all lies. But I don't think that David was insincere in this. I think David believed every bit of this. I think he meant it with all of his heart. And this is giving us a glimpse into why David was a man after God's own heart. Okay? So anyway, back to where I was at. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothe you in scarlet with other delights who put on ornaments of gold upon your, upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant thou hast been to me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? And so this is what David penned. This is kind of a psalm, and it's recorded in the Psalms as well. This is what David was singing about Saul and Jonathan at their death in the presence of all of these seasoned soldiers. And this is having an effect on the people that's around him, right? And so one of our purposes in studying through these things is seeing the effects that these men, these kings, had on those who was around them because for us as Christians, we have an effect on those who are around us. We have influence. We have impact. And we have to understand how that works. And David is having influence on all these men. Okay? And so anyway, whenever we come to chapter 2, and I said this is where I wanted to read. I know I already read David's uh, eulogy here. But in chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've recognized how many times it says that David has inquired of the Lord. David doesn't make a move without asking God about it. And that is another key to his life, to his success, is that he is constantly seeking God. And just something I'll put out there whenever, I know I've mentioned this passage several times about David being a man uh, after God's own heart. We often think of it as being that he has a heart just like God. I don't know how you think about it, how you normally think of it. Kind of like Enoch, Enoch walked with God. Yes, exactly. And whenever something went wrong immediately, he, and when he mm-hmm. realized that he repented, that kind of thing. But he was just at a very, very close walk with the Lord. 
Okay. Is that how everybody else, or how does everybody else typically yeah, look at it? I agree with that, Dr. Sam, that he had such a love for the Lord David that he strived to please him yeah. in any way. Mm -hmm. And as they said, that if he did do something that he straight away wanted to make yeah. right with the Lord, and yeah, you can actually see that actually mm -hmm. the relationship that he had with God. Yeah, it's actually make me almost get it. <laughs> you know, just to see that, that no matter what, and I think sometimes just to add to this is that sometimes we do forget that um, we'll make a decision between us, mm -hmm. but sometimes you don't include the Lord in it, mm -hmm. because we just feel, you know, yeah. we just make this decision. But mm -hmm. I think there's something else when we, every time we leave it by God's feet and, you know, just mm -hmm. wait for the Lord to answer on that. Um, yeah, I can see that. It's a nice relationship yeah, yeah, yeah you, you mentioned being jealous about it, but yeah, that's the thing is it's it's available to everyone. It's just a matter of whether or not we pursue him. But generally, my thought on it has always been, you know, man after God's own heart. It means like he was he was made in his likeness. I know we're made in the image and likeness of God, but that David kind of processed things the same way that his his attitudes were similar to what God was. Is the way I always looked at it. But then, as I was kind of looking at it, thinking about it, and the wording of it, and all. Uh, just the thought that came into my mind that came closer probably to what you guys were saying mm -hmm. is that David was after God's heart. Yeah. That uh, it was something that he was pursuing. Right. Because we are, we're after a lot of things, right? <clears throat> oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, it's what you are, your focus is, what you're pursuing mm -hmm. after, right? Mm -hmm. And so whatever it says that a man after my own heart is that someone pursuing, someone who's seeking my heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be maybe a, a more accurate way of reading that passage. Maybe wrong, really, I don't know. But just whenever God says, I found a man after my heart, Saul didn't care about God's heart. God wasn't or Saul wasn't pursuing after God and after his heart. He wasn't trying to be on the same page. He wasn't trying to seek after him. And God told Saul, I'm I've got a man who is after my heart, who is seeking after me, who is pursuing after me. And he's the one that I've got to that I've got to lead Israel. Because Ultimately, it was still meant to be a theocracy. God was still supposed to be one in the lead. God was still supposed to be the king, mm -hmm. and uh, the king was supposed to be the under-shepherd, if you will, okay. that was doing the bidding of God. He was the steward, right? Mm -hmm. And so he needed someone who was after him, yeah. someone who was going to follow him, someone who was going to pursue <clears throat> him, and that was who David was. Right. And we see that going on with uh, this relationship all through and so whenever it says that David inquired of the Lord, this was just the way he did things. This was how he operated. And I figure that even his men, whenever there was a decision that came up, whenever there was something go, going on, they got used to it. They were like, okay, we've got to wait until David inquires of the Lord. Right. We have to wait until David prays about it. We have to wait until he gets you know, gets direction about this because it's just the way that things are. This is the way that he operates. Right. And... Uh, so anyway, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said unto Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, uh, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife the Carmelite. And his men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, 
and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they who buried Saul. And so we'll stop there for a minute. And um, if we just kind of take ourselves, put ourselves in this place for a minute, think about what we would be like. And it might be a stretch. We've never been in any position in anything near like David was. But Saul has just been killed. Word has come to him. And David is considering what the next step is. Because I said our two things that we would have that came to mind when we heard Saul was dead was, I'm glad he's gone. Now it's my turn. That'd be the two things, right? And so as David didn't take the opportunity to think, I'm glad he's gone. He mourned him. He lamented him, right? And rather than saying, it's my turn, and getting all of his armies together and saying, let's go and take the throne, he consults God. He says, God... Is it right for me to leave where I'm at? He's in Philistine territory. He's in Ziklag. Okay? He's outside of Israel. He says, is it right for me to go back to Israel? And God says, yes, go back to Israel. And he says, okay, God, I want to know not just to go back to Israel, where in Israel? I mean, he wants down to the place. And God directs him to Hebron, which is in Judah, which he's out of the tribe of Judah. He says, go back to your people. Okay? So he doesn't go to where Saul was king. He doesn't go to where the palace was. He doesn't. He goes back to Hebron. And it says him, his men, all their families, and it says they dwelt in Hebron. Mm-hmm. So they like moved into the city. And now they are in this place where it seems almost like discussions are taking place. I don't know. And it says that the men of Hebron and the men of uh, Judah all come together to where David's at and says, David, we want you to be our king. So that'd be a little bit exciting, a little bit disappointing, right? Because David's thinking, it's been 15 years, I've been expecting to become king of Israel, and now they're offering me to become king of Judah. I came to be, I was anointed to be king of 12 tribes. Now they're wanting me to be king of one tribe. And so something I've pointed out all the way through this is how many times David had to have been confused or disappointed because he's waiting. He's impatient just like we are. He has to be. He's human. Mm -hmm. It's like God anointed me to become king, and now I'm not king. I'm back with the sheep. Now I'm not the king, but I'm playing music for the king. I'm not the king, but I'm married to the king's daughter. I'm not the king, but I'm leading the king's army. I'm servant to the king. I'm armor bearer to the king. Now I'm hated by the king. Now I'm pursued by the king. Now I'm run off by the king. Now I am going out and making alliances with kings of other countries. But I'm still not the king. Okay, I'm the king, but I'm not the king of Israel. And so all through this, he's like, God, what are you doing? How's this going to work out on and on? And so anyway, he becomes the king of Judah. And the first act that he has of the king of Judah here is he is told that it was the men of Jabesh Gilead that went and stole the body from the Philistines, the body of Saul. Whenever the Philistines found Saul in the field, whenever they found his dead body, they took it back to their country, pinned it up onto the walls, and was using it as a spectacle to mock and ridicule the Jews and to ridicule ridicule Saul. And the men of Jabesh Gilead (laughs) snuck in behind enemy lines 
got the body of Saul and came and gave it a proper burial. Okay. And so David heard about this and he sent to them and uh, praised them for the act that they had done, showing that he had no animosity against Saul. This is him behaving himself wisely still. He's telling the people of Jabesh Gilead, you did well. This was God's anointed. This was our king. They're like, wait a second. He was the guy that persecuted you. Yes, but he was the king of Israel. And so he is, all throughout this, I figure that his men are just standing back like, I don't get it. You know, this is extremely kind. This is diplomatic even. But why is David doing these things? Well, like I said, he's behaving himself wisely. He is, all of these things that he is doing is endearing himself to so many people. It's showing great wisdom. It's like, um, we often equate wisdom with Solomon, right? He was the wisest man. We talk about Solomon whenever they bring the baby and he says to divide it in half to determine who the mother was, right? You say, oh, how, much, how wise was he? But all these things that David is doing is showing extreme wisdom and how that he's handling people and how he's dealing tenderly with the people. Because here's one of the, the things that we miss out on this is at this point in time, Israel could have easily been divided, right? Each tribe could have gotten their own king. They could have appointed their own leadership. Uh, it could have been this side versus that side. They could have all went back into, as I said, tribalism. And David did not want the people of Israel to be divided. He wasn't trying to persecute. He wasn't trying to force anything. He was walking easily and allowing God to do things so that it would be done right. He showed great wisdom. If he would have forced his hand, things would have blew up. But it didn't. And so he's showing kindness to all those that are around him. And we have a but in verse number 8. It says, But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And this Abner, he is the same one that brought David to Saul whenever David slew Goliath. He's the same one that David mocked whenever uh, he failed to protect Saul as David took Saul's spear in his canteen. You remember that? David held him up and said, Abner, you didn't do a very good job at protecting the king. I could have killed him. That was Abner. And so Abner is looking at this, and he knows that David is anointed to become king. He knows that he is a military leader. He knows that the people of Israel desire David. But he also knows that David has a military leader, Joab. He knows that if David becomes king, that his position and his power is in jeopardy. And so basically what Abner does here is he tries to manipulate things to preserve his power and his position. And so what Abner does is he takes Saul's one remaining son, Ishbosheth, and makes a king out of him. He says, okay, all of the, the Eastern nations, the way that their kings work is there's a succession. The king dies, his oldest son becomes the next king. Ishbosheth is weak, he is powerless, he is a puppet ruler, uh, he is not king material at all. Uh, whenever Saul is going off to battle, whenever he's going to fight, he takes his strong and strapping warlike sons with him, leaves Abner at home playing video games. I don't know. Or not Abner, Ishbosheth. Yeah. I know they didn't have video games back then, but I'm just saying, I can imagine he was probably the dorky, nerdy one. And this was Ishbosheth. 
and you might think I'm being a little bit hard on him, but if you look at his interactions with Abner, Abner was ruling the roost. It was Abner that was in charge. Ishbosheth was just there as a figurehead. That was it. He had no power. He had no say. He was a puppet of Abner's. And so Abner looked at Ishbosheth and he said, I will make you become king. And basically, I'm going to be king by proxy. I won't be king because you are too weak and you're too incapable. And so I'm going to run the show and you're going to be the face because you are of Saul's household. And this is what Ishbosheth does and what Abner does. And so once again, David is standing here saying, okay, well, I'm king over Judah, but Saul's lineage is continuing in Israel. Am I ever going to be king of Israel? Right? And so what ends up happening is David kind of fades off of the scene for a little bit, and you have Joab and Abner. They are the ones that are trying to make things happen. David is quietly waiting for God to do something. Ishbosheth is fretting away in his palace or whatever, trying to figure out how in the world he's supposed to be a king. And Joab and Abner come together. They have their armies. They're on opposite sides of like a lake or a pond or something. And they set out a challenge to one another. Abner starts it out. He says, hey, Joab, send me your strongest guys and let's see what they've got. And so Abner, Joab, they both send out 12 guys. They grab each other. They stab each other. And 24 men lay dead on the edge of the water. And then the battle's won. And so now you have Israel having a civil war. The people of Abraham fighting the people of Abraham, right? And so they're chasing each other. They're pursuing one another. Uh, people are dying. They finally call it off. And there is a time that uh, there's just constant strife between Judah and Israel, okay? For this seven-year period that David is king of over, over just Judah, there is this constant turmoil, this tension between them. It says in chapter number three, now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. This isn't the idea that they were constantly in battle, that they were fighting every day. It was just that there was constant skirmishes, there was constant tension between them. And uh, Ishbosheth and Abner was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And David was going from strength to strength. He was getting, the Lord was causing things to change. And this is what David was waiting on. He was allowing this to happen. And it was supposed to be that whenever it came time, that God would allow David to unite the people of Israel and he would be king over all of them. He's not trying to plot Ishbosheth's death. He's not trying to plot Abner's death. He is just waiting for God to do what God does because he's seen this for over half of his life, right? He's waited all this time. And so anyway, uh, David ends up in the beginning of chapter number three. While he's waiting, doesn't have anything better to do, he starts multiplying wives to himself. Okay? He starts multiplying wives to himself uh, in complete disregard of what God's law says in Deuteronomy. Chapter 17, verse 17, it says that Whenever Israel gets a king, they shall not multiply wives to themselves nor silver and gold to themselves. And so God forbade this. God put it off limits. They are not supposed to do this. And David went ahead and was doing it. 
because he was being like all the nations around him. That was something monarchs, royalty did was marry other women and start having this harem or whatever. And so you had the first two that he had, Abigail and Ahinoam, but then he had one that was a uh, daughter of a king, so that was probably a political marriage. What the other ones were, we're not sure. But what ended up being the results of these multiple marriages? Oh, it would have been chaos, yeah. I know, looking at all women at the moment, none of them would want to be sharing, right? And so anyway, it wouldn't have been good for the immediate, but we know in the long run, it caused chaos in his household because there was tension between uh, half-siblings and siblings. Uh, out of the children that are mentioned here, we know that uh, Absalom kills one of his brothers, and he mounts a um, coup against his father, trying to overthrow his father and take over the throne. Uh, Amnon uh, seduces, rapes his half-sister, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, then you have, uh, let me see, which one is Adonijah. Whenever David is getting old, Adonijah tries to make himself king, mm -hmm. right? And so there's all of this treachery going on, all this stuff happening, and much of it is happening because David had multiple wives. Right. Uh, we find the same thing going on in uh, Jacob's house with marrying uh, Leah, and, Leah, and Leah and Rachel and the two concubines and all that, and how there was so much tension in the household. Uh, there was all this that was going on. Uh, and not only that, we also see it multiplied in Solomon's life because what David did little, Solomon did in excess. And so he ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines because, well, dad had 20 or 30, so why shouldn't I have a few hundred, right? And so that's what he ends up doing, and it causes problems. And the lesson for us there, uh, we've kind of been looking at David from a good point of view as David's been doing good things. David's been behaving himself wisely. In this, he behaves stupidly. And it causes many problems. There's going to be uh, lots of consequences to the actions that he takes. Mm -hmm. But for us specifically, uh, we know that God's plan, God created Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. That's what he, he said. The man would leave his father and mother and would cleave unto his wife. It'd be one flesh. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't leave any room for there being multiple wives. Right. And so what we find in that is whenever we go outside of God's recipe, where we go outside of the way that God has designed things, there's going to be unintentional and unpleasant consequences, always. And that's not just with polygamy, because that's not something we have to worry about too much. There's not too many people who are polygamists anymore. Now, I know we talked to, you know, with other cultures and things, uh, in some Eastern cultures, Arab cultures, uh, African cultures, that's still a thing. But even in all those cultures, uh, there are still the consequences, all the issues and things. But it's not just with polygamy, but it's with marriage all the way around. Uh, God's plan was never for divorce. It was never for uh, adultery and fornication, all these things. Whenever we start uh, leaving God's uh, design, and not even just for relationships in all areas of our lives, there's going to be unintentional, unpleasant consequences. And... Uh, that's something that we can see not just in David's life, but in so many different characters in Scripture 
whenever they step outside of God's design, the consequences that come as a result. Uh, even in much, something much more accepted, just being unequally yoked, right? In relationships, and that's not even just in marriage, it's in business relationships, it's in friendships and all these things. Whenever we have too close a relationships to people that we are not equally yoked to, it's going to have consequences in our lives. And so there's, there's plenty of Christians that married Christians, but just because you're both Christians doesn't mean you're equally yoked. You have someone who loves God and someone who's just a nominal Christian, they're not equally yoked together, right? And they're going to have problems. And so that's just several different things that we see there. But David is going outside of God's design, and he's going to smart for it. But we find, as we continue in chapter 3, that Ishbosheth, being the weak and wimp that he is, he does actually grow a bit of a backbone for one time, and it costs him. And what happens is that Abner uh, decides to take Saul's concubine, Rizpah. And in our, car- in our current culture and our way of thinking, uh, this may seem like a non-event. But in their culture, whenever a king died, his successor got his harem. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so for uh, Abner to take in one of Saul's wives or one of his concubines was him laying claim on the throne. And I don't believe that Abner made Ishbosheth king because he wanted Ishbosheth to become king. He used Ishbosheth as a stepping stone. And so I believe this was his attempt to try to put a claim on the throne. Ishbosheth calls him out for it. And so whenever Ishbosheth says, Hey, you can't do that, he says, Watch me. He says, if you're not going to be my puppet anymore, then I'm just going to get rid of you and I'm going to go to David now. And so Abner leaves Ishbosheth. He comes to David and he says, Hey, I'm not happy with him anymore. God has made it clear that you're supposed to become king and I have a plan. You know, I've been running things anyway. So I have a plan to unite Israel under you. And they set in place here a. Uh, peace talks or whatever, a, power, a peaceful transition of power is what Abner and David are in the talks of. And so Abner is planning on bringing all of Israel under David's hand, and this is what David is desiring. He's not wanting civil war. He's not wanting to go and kill Ishbosheth. He's not wanting assassinations. He's wanting to just go and say, okay, uh, Israel's chosen me. Uh, Ishbosheth, be on your way, you know. And so they're in the middle of all this, but there's still a jealousy between Abner and Joab. They are uh, competing positions here. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, and part that we skipped, uh, Joab's little brother was being obnoxious and forced Abner to kill him. Okay? Just to put it simply. And Joab's never forgiven Abner for killing his little brother, even though his little brother had it coming. So there's a personal vendetta here. And so Joab was away whenever Abner was visiting with King David. And whenever Joab comes back, he hears that Abner was there and was sent away in peace, and he gets angry. And he actually uh, is fairly abusive toward David and essentially says that he was foolish to trust Abner, that Abner's motives are not pure. And he secretly sends for Abner. Whenever Abner comes back, Joab kills him. 
Okay? Lots of treachery going on, and David is standing on the sidelines. David's not trying to get this to happen. And so anyway, uh, Joab kills Abner, and how does David treat that? Did David want Abner dead? No. He makes it clear that he did not want him dead, that it wasn't him that ordered it. It wasn't his will. It wasn't his plan. And he mourns the death of Abner. He gives him a proper burial. And he forces Joab and all the army to mourn for Abner that they killed. Okay? And so pardon me for going a little bit in-depth in all the story, but I'm wanting to see the way that David's handling things through this. Okay? And so after Abner's dead, word gets back to Ishbosheth. He was a puppet, and his puppeteer is gone. Mm-hmm. And so it tells us that uh, he loses all strength, that he is weak and shaking and all these things, because what he is expecting to happen is that David is coming for him, right? He heard that Abner went to David, and now Abner's dead, and Ishbosheth is like, oh no, I'm next. And it was never David's intention. David wasn't coming for Ishbosheth. David was waiting for God to work things together. He wasn't making it happen. And so, anyway, this gives us where Ishbosheth is scared. He's quaking, all these things. They take Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, right? And flee with him. And uh, as they're fleeing, he, uh, he falls or is uh, injured in some way, becomes lame in his feet. That comes back later in David. Brings him into his household, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's when all this happens is whenever Abner's dead, word gets back, Ishbosheth is afraid, and Ishbosheth's servants say, Abner's dead, David's clearly going to become king, and so let's help him along to endear ourselves to David. How many times have people had this idea in a backfire? Several, right? So these two servants kill Ishbosheth in his own bed. They come in full in, pretend like they're coming in to get food or something. He's there in his bed by himself, unguarded, and they just sneak into this wimpy little sniveling king and cut his head off. Take it to David and say, hey, look what we have. And they think that they're going to impress David. And David says, just like he did to the other guy, uh, you've signed your own death warrant, kills them both, and makes it plain that David was not in charge of this whole thing. He did not want anything to do with this assassination of Ishbosheth. Okay? And so through all that, he treats Abner and Saul and Jonathan and Ishbosheth, all of those men, he treats them with great respect and dignity, even whenever no one else is. And after Ishbosheth is dead, the people of Israel all come to David and they said, David, we know that you were the one that was supposed to become king. You have led us faithfully. You have led the armies. You have the hand of God upon you. Become our king. And finally, at he'd be about 37 years old now. I mean, this has been over 20 years coming, 22, 23 years. And finally, at like 37 years old, that's the same age as I am, he finally becomes king. After waiting since he was a teenager, he's king over all of Judah And he doesn't have to do it through treachery. He doesn't have to scheme. He just has to let God order his steps. And that God even uses the wickedness and the wicked dealings of these other men. It wasn't God's will, 
But God was able to use the things that they did and the sinful actions that they had to bring about his will because God's just that big. And in the end, David is sitting on the throne and he is beloved of all the people and they have seen how he handled himself and they're looking at him and they're saying there is no other man on this earth that would have handled these things the way that David has done. He has done all things well. And they put him on the throne. He has respect. He has uh, all of the people behind him completely faithful to him. None of them can say he was against Saul. None of them can say that he was a schemer. None of them can say that he had uh, come about this in the wrong way. They can say God's the one that did this, and he put him here. And they followed him, and he had all the armies behind him in strength from day one. And so he becomes king over all of Israel in chapter number five. And one of the first things that he does after he becomes king is he makes Jerusalem the capital. This will be the final thing we'll look at tonight. And Jerusalem was held by people who were not Jewish. Whenever the people of Israel came in and conquered Canaan, conquered the promised land, they left a lot of the enemies behind. And one of the enemies that they left behind was the Jebusites, and they were the ones that inhabited the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was on a high hill. It was rock cliffs around it. There was three valleys surrounding uh, three sides of it. it had had The other side of it was where you accessed it from. So you had the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Hinnom, another valley that I can't pronounce, surrounding it. And so it was basically impregnable. It was a very well-defensed and fortified city. But something else that was interesting about it, it didn't belong to Judah. It didn't belong to Israel. It didn't belong to, Judah, uh, to, to Benjamin. But it was right on the border between Judah and Benjamin. David wants to unify the people. He wants to unify the country. And so he's going to set up his city in a very well-defensed place. He's not going to settle in the land of one side or the other. He's going to settle directly in between them in the land that hasn't been inhabited by either of them. And this is going to be a unifying thing. This is going to be the bridge between the two of them to bring healing. And so he uh, settles in the city of Jeru or Jerusalem. But remember, I said it was very well fortified. It was very well defensed. The Jebusites originally were mocking David and basically saying the blind and the lame could defend the city against you because of how well fortified we are. And so David uh, challenges whoever can get up and get the city is going to, you know, he promises all these things. And Joab's the one that goes and captures the city. And they defeat the Jebusites, throw them out. They should have been defeated back in the days of Joshua. Throws them out. And now the city of Jerusalem is the city of David. Okay, This is going to be the city that he reigns and rules from. It's going to be the place where he buys a parcel of ground that will later have the temple on it, where all the sacrifices are going to take place, where Jesus is going to one day walk, where the even to this day the Muslims and the Jews fight over. And David was the one that was in charge of securing that city that one day Jesus would be crucified in. Mm -hmm. And it was even prophesied and all these things told about. And God, I guess, worked in David's heart and David's mind and set him to this place, guided him to this place because it was all part of his plan. What David was doing back then 
was paving the way for 500 years later whenever Jesus would come to this earth. And David was securing that place. I think here. Yeah. Anyway. I said 500 years. It was more than 500. Yeah. Anyway. 1,000 years. Yeah. Because you had about 500 years worth of kings. 500 years from time of silence and exile. Yeah. 1,000 years. So this is 1,000 years ahead of time. That David is securing this place that would one day be where Jesus would walk, where he would be offered up, where he would be crucified, die, bury, rise again, right? And David was securing that city then and all the prophecies that would be surrounding that place, all the history that would take place. And so David, in his first act, as king over all of Israel, was making Jerusalem the capital. Mm-hmm. And so he did that, and it's had far-reaching consequences ever since. Good consequences, right? Mm-hmm. And... Whenever he dwelled in that city, then the first thing that happened after he got in the city is the king surrounding him started sending in Hiram, the king of Tyre, started sending things for him to build his house and started all these works and projects, eventually be the, the, the palace and the temple and all those. But as David sat in Jerusalem as the king, as other kings were honoring him and sending him gifts, as he was defensive, he said, he said, finally, God has placed me, God has made me king. And so here he is, probably close to 40 years old, and he finally says, and I need to look here, I don't have it written down or underlined here. Um, verse number 12 of chapter 5, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. And so that was what David finally got to, almost 40 years old. And he's been waiting for this 20-some years. And he says, I've perceived that God has finally made me king. He has carried through with his promise. He has done what he told me all the way back there. It was a crazy journey, right? And so now David is king. He has been exalted. But we all know that just because God has fulfilled his promise and has put him on the throne, uh, the journey's not over yet. You know, we, I was talking with Les uh, this past week sometime about um, destination addiction. You ever talk about that? Uh, if you've never heard of that, what it is, it's the idea that you're always looking for the next thing, the next thing. And so you're planning out your entire life by... If I can just do this, if I can, if I just get to there and you're always looking at the next thing, not the moment now that you're living in, but you're always looking down the road at the destination and you're missing the journey basically. And so with us, with this whole idea of getting to the destination, David's finally got to the destination. He's finally king. He has arrived, you know, but with David, it's just the beginning. And so in our lives as well, we have this idea we're looking for the destination. If only this happens. If God could do this, if God could answer this prayer or do this thing. And in, in God's time, he makes things happen. He brings things about. But that doesn't mean it's all over. Because David's still going to have battles he has to fight, victories he has to win, projects he has to work on, right? There's going to be highs and lows. There's going to be 
uh, good decisions and bad decisions. And really, the journey's not over till we get to glory. And so, with David being an example in a Christian life, it's not that, okay, he's the king, this is the end of it, but that he's got to continue walking with God. He's got to continue keeping his eyes on the Lord. He's got to continue seeking after God's will in every decision that he makes and behaving himself wisely. Because we're going to find later on that there are times that he quits doing that. And it costs him greatly. So if we're not careful as Christians, we get to the place we feel like, okay, I'm seasoned now. I have matured. I've got this Christian thing figured out. I don't know if you've ever got there or not. But anyway, some people do. I've heard about it. But anyway, uh, if you ever get to this place where you're like, okay, I'm comfortable with where I'm at as a Christian. There's no place for us to coast. There's no place for us to just set down an anchor and say, okay, I want to just stay here. Because as soon as we do, uh, there's no setting still. We're either going forward or we're going backward. And whenever David quits pursuing after God, whenever he quits uh, seeking after him and decides to just coast for a little bit, it's not long before he finds himself uh, in deep trouble, right? Same thing goes in our lives as well. We've got to keep rising on the Lord. Because in those times we let our guard down, when there's times whenever we decided just unplug for a while, uh, we're going to get backed up. Okay. So, anyone have anything tonight? Anything to add or argue or anything? I don't know if there's anything necessarily to argue with David? King Saul, he must be hidden, wasn't he? Yes. After he was found dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they found him dead, they cut his head off. Against the wall. Mm-hmm. He wasn't buried. They actually burned him. Mm-hmm. Buried the bones. Yeah, they burnt the burnt the body, buried the bones. The people of of Jabesh Gilead. I don't know if they ever recovered the head. I'd have to go back and look. But that was like the trophy. They'd take the head yeah. off and show it everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you even find that um, the head of Goliath appears at other places because you find the head of Goliath ends up in Jerusalem eventually, and it's like David's trophy. It's like a, it's a reminder of the victory. And David doesn't end up in Jerusalem until you know, like 25 years after Goliath. He still got Goliath's head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they have like the, the head shrinking or whatnot. Like the <laughs> I don't, I don't. <coughs> you take a giant's head and you shrink it, it's normal size then, right? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's what they would do is they would uh, take it as a souvenir and they would, uh, like the Philistines killed Saul, they would take his head off. And they would put it up in the, the temple of their gods or they would take it and parade it from city to city and whatnot. Let everybody see, hey, we've defeated this guy. So that's where the Roman Catholic gets it from. Probably. They have all these skulls and bones and share it on each other. Good luck. It's possible, yeah. Does it have it I was just thinking there with David that because he always worked to please God and his relationship with God, that what at that moment did he decide when he took more than one wife, you know, made that decision? Mm-hmm. It's like, where was he thinking after all the time, he was, you know, mm-hmm. he was walking with the Lord and that? Just to what he was thinking of. When you think of, you know, it's like an example of our lives, like even in a job description, you you're a salesperson, and you move up to supervisor. Each position entails more 
things to do, mm-hmm. more problems. And more stuff responsibility, like that. yeah. Yeah, so it just makes you think differently. Even each season in your life and each year in your life, you know, comes with different things. Mm-hmm. Because you enter into different phases of your life, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, you can never stop growing and learning, maturing when <laughs> you try. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it just reflects back on your life and just think, you know, seeing David like that and just after so long finally getting to where he was to become king and thinking, well, okay, you know, but it's never the end. Like you said, it, it's still, there's a whole lot still coming that way. Well, and it goes back to what I said that he was a man after God's own heart, but he was a man after Adam's flesh. Yeah. And so there, I struggle a bit with the whole thing of polygamy in the Bible. And the main reason being that it, though we always see the negative consequences of it in the Bible, you don't find it necessarily uh, openly condemned. Okay. Because, you know, there's certain things that David does and there is a prophet or a priest or someone comes and confronts him, you know, Nathan or Gad comes along and says, okay, the thing that you did was wrong. And, you know, in a lot of these cases, no one ever comes to him or, you know, um, Jacob speaks to God several times, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily find that God ever says, okay, uh, you got too many wives. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I wonder why. But then, on the other hand, we find that there's a lot of things that's never actually dealt with directly because of the the cultural prevalence, such as slavery is one of them. But we find that God deals with it over time and eradicates it from people groups whenever they have had like a longer walk with God. Mm-hmm. You know, over time, the exposure to God and to his word and to his spirit ends up driving some of these things out. But it makes me wonder why God didn't just say, okay, David, that's enough. Don't keep getting more wives. Yeah. You know, because whatever, you know, he, he does everything with Bathsheba. You know, there's consequences immediately and the prophet comes and says, thou art the man and all that. You don't find him saying, hey, you know, you've already got seven, eight of them at home. Why are you got, going for another one? But that comes back into, we're not going to understand everything that God does. Uh, We can't argue and say, oh, God's okay with polygamy because he made it perfectly clear he was not. Even the the verse that I referenced, Deuteronomy 17, 17, says that the king was not to multiply wives unto himself. And David clearly did. Solomon very, very clearly did. And we see all the negative consequences of it, but we don't ever see a, a time where it says... Thou shalt not. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Okay, well, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And Lord, we do thank you so much, Lord, for your word that we have. And Lord, for all these uh, historical accounts, Lord, of uh, your dealings with dealings with men, and we just pray, Lord, ask you just help us to learn these lessons, and Lord, I pray that we could uh, see these examples and behave ourselves wisely, and that even the the bad examples, that we still steer clear of those, and Lord, that we would just seek to uh, have an impact for you for the cause of Christ, Lord. 
Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.